Luke chapter number 10, and I would like to begin reading from Luke chapter 10 and verse number 25. And what a great day to be with God's people at Eagle Heights Baptist Church. Thank you for your faithfulness to the Lord and your love for the Bible and your heart for Him. Uh, it's just been a joy and a blessing for me these days to see what God is doing in this place and, and for people who love the Word of God and love the God of the Word. Isn't it stunning how, as they sang this morning, I thought of the, the story of, of the Lord Jesus Christ dealing with Peter. And he said, Peter, you're going to die for me. You're going to be, basically be crucified for me. And yet through it all, after the Lord Jesus said, I'll take your life, repeatedly he told those words to Peter, now follow me. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me, there's a price to pay. And I, I'm grateful and thankful for people willing to say, not what the world has, but I will follow my Savior. God bless you. You have your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 10. What a great day Father's Day is. And I, I'm so grateful and thankful for my dad who's in heaven now about 10 years. Uh, he was saved. My mother and dad were saved just a few months before I was born. I had the privilege to grow up in a Christian family in a good church just like yours where the Word of God was preached. And, and uh, yet of all the great memories of my dad, I remember him sitting around the table every night with an open Bible as we had a family altar regularly, consistently, and how grateful and thankful I am for a dad who sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and more than any other earthly reason, uh, because of a dad that feared God, loved the Lord, gave his life to the Lord, uh, it, 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 I, I stand here today. I'm so thankful for him. You know, I said a special spot in my heart when the preacher talked about next Saturday. My dad uh, spent his years as a member of a church like yours uh, teaching a soul winning class. And God used him to not only see multitudes of people saved, and I mean multitudes, but uh, he also taught others how to lead their friends and neighbors to Christ. And, and it was his efforts along with a few others in the church who joined their pastor. When I was a teenager, we saw our church uh, grow from about 100 people to 900 people. And it was just, a, 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 and it was all personal soul winning. And as I heard your pastor invite you to come first to a class, I think that's so brilliant. I wish everybody did that and very few do. But uh, I think a lot of people say, my neighbor needs to get saved. My loved one needs to get saved. The kid at school needs to get saved. What do I do? And, and there's no gene to do this. You have to sit in the class and learn how to do it. And I, I appreciate your pastor's willingness. And if I could just echo his plea and encourage you Saturday morning to lay some time aside, to learn how to lead somebody to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you'll be stunned how the Lord will use that. You'll also be amazed in its simplicity. It's, it's not rocket science. By the Lord has made a simple plan of salvation that you and I can give to others. And I, I, as he talked about that, I thought of my dad's class. So many hundreds of people he taught how to be personal soul winners. And I appreciate your pastor doing that immensely. Now, if you have your Bible this morning to the book of Luke in chapter 10. As we jump in the middle of Luke chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ is on a long and a slow journey. It started up by the Sea of Galilee with the common folk that lived in the fishing villages, the, the crusty old crowd, we might say, of the northern part of Israel. And, and the Lord is making a long but a serious trek that will take him from Galilee across the Jordan River into modern-day Jordan. And then he will come back through Jericho and ultimately make his way to Jerusalem. While certainly the multitudes that are thronging him and shoving at one another and tripping over one another, they can't begin to understand where this is going to lead. In the inside of the Lord Jesus Christ, the pressure is enormous. He is straightened. He is heading towards Calvary. 
And yet along the way, we have a most amazing story in Luke chapter 10. And yet contrary to what modern religion thinks, the story begins in verse number 25. For along the way, the word of God tells us that a certain lawyer stood up. Now, through American eyes, when we look at that verse and read about a lawyer, we imagine someone who at least ought to be an expert in the Constitution. They ought to know the law of the land. They ought to know the law of the state of Missouri. They ought to know the laws of Kansas City. Someone who's an expert in our law. But understand, if you lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, the law was literally Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So what you and I might think of a lawyer as hopefully being an expert in American law, well, to be an expert in Israeli law 2,000 years ago meant you were an expert in the Bible. In the Word of God, in the book of Luke, there are 15 times where these gentlemen are called scribes. Another six times, like here, they are called lawyers. And on one occasion, they're known as the teachers of the law. But make no mistake about it, when this scribe is going to speak with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are talking about a man who is the undisputed spiritual leader in the nation of Israel. To be a scribe, it tells us the man was an educated man. To be a scribe, he would be a smart man. To be a scribe, he would also, even in older age, be a student of the Word of God. And while you and I might read the word lawyer and imagine somebody who graduated from Harvard, well, if he could be taken from Bible times and put into our day, this wouldn't be a guy so comfortable at Harvard as much as he would be comfortable in a seminary. What they called the lawyer back then, we might think of as a theologian today. So with that background, if you're able physically, could I invite you to stand together with me? And we come to Luke chapter 10, verse number 25. The Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. My father, as we open the Bible, we pray for your help and your blessing this morning for someone in this building, someone online who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful day to be saved, not according to religion, not according to a minister, but to have salvation according to thy word. Father, I pray for your people that the word of God would stir our hearts and our minds and our souls here this morning, during this day. May you do that work of revival in your people. We ask in the strong, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. There's one other thing we ought to notice about this gentleman lawyer of Luke chapter number 10. Not only was he a brilliant man, an educated man, and a leader of men, he was also... He was a crooked lawyer. You say, well, how do you know? Because the Bible tells us in verse 25 that a certain lawyer stood up. You're in a teaching setting now, and in New Testament times, when you would gather yourselves into a class in a classroom setting, the teacher would be seated, and oftentimes the students would sit in a circle or a square around the teacher. Yet to show great respect, the student that was sitting in the seat would stand up when they would ask the question. So do you get the picture? It's kind of a classroom this morning, and, and so respect. 
respectfully to show great honor, Mr. Lawyer, Mr. Scribe, is going to stand up as Jesus Christ is teaching with a question. But you notice the word of God exposes him for what he really is. He stood up with one purpose, to tempt Jesus Christ. See, that was the whole story of the religious establishment in the first century. Oh, call them here scribes. There was another arm of the religious establishment. They were called the Pharisees. And every time they show up in the book of Luke, they are there to criticize. Every time they show up, they've got their clipboards and their pens. And they just want to see if they can catch Jesus in his words. They want to see if they can find some fault or find some error. And they're always picking up the carpet. They're always looking in the closets. They're always looking in the dark corners why they always want to find fault with Jesus. And now Mr. Scribe, oh, he appears to be so humble on the outside, but he stands up with a loaded question. You know what this guy is like? I don't know if you see it much at high school here, but, but I think when you get past high school and you get into the college level, you may be a little more apt to see it. But have you ever been in a classroom where there was that student who thought he knew more than the teacher? And whenever he would ask a question, or I suppose she would ask a question, the question was always not to learn. The question was always to let everybody else know how smart I am in asking the question. And if you've ever been in a class with somebody like that, if they did it once a semester, that would be one time too many. But they find a way to do it like weekly or even daily. And if you've ever been in a class like that, well, that's what it's like in Luke chapter 10. Mr. Scribe stands up so respectfully, but here he goes. He is going to tempt the Lord Jesus, and he says in that verse, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Now, if you are saved by the blood of Christ, as soon as you listen to Mr. Scribe ask that question, the alarms should be sounding and the lights should be flashing and every part of our inner discernment ought to be saying there's a lot wrong with that question. My, you talk about a bad question. This guy gets it wrong on a lot of levels, doesn't he? I mean, you'll notice when it comes to eternal life, he addresses the Lord Jesus Christ as his master. I'm sorry, that's the wrong name. A master is not the same. The Christ is the Savior. He addresses Jesus inappropriately. Number two, when it comes to eternal life, well, could I paraphrase Ronald Reagan for a moment? When it comes to eternal life, I is not the solution. I is the problem. And when he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He has certainly got the focus on the wrong thing. Because there is nothing I do, there is nothing you do, and there is nothing a scribe does to inherit eternal life. This guy's got the question all wrong, but he's only warming up. Number three, when it comes to eternal life, the word do shouldn't be found anywhere near it. When it comes to going to heaven, nobody does anything to earn eternal life. The appropriate word would not be do. The appropriate word would be done. It has already happened at the cross of Calvary. And when it comes to eternal life number four, well eternal life is not an inheritance. Now there is a way where the Bible tells us when we are born into the family of God then we have an inheritance of eternal life. However, no one inherits eternal life from their mother, from their father, from their parents, from their family, or as perhaps was being thought of here, you do not inherit eternal life because you are born into the nation of Israel. So the man asked one question and there are four incredible flaws with the whole thing. 
I got to tell you, I don't know where he went to school, but he probably should have gone somewhere else, you think? Good master, you got that wrong. What shall I, wrong word, do another wrong word to inherit eternal life? On all accounts, the man asked the question that is all wrong. And yet while the question may be wrong, do you know what he is? He becomes the perfect spokesman for religion. Because that is exactly what religion says this morning. Oh, you can pick a different church. You can pick a different religion. You can pick one in America, pick one in Asia, pick one in Europe. You can pick them around the world. But religion, no matter how it looks, no matter how it sounds, it always boils down to the same equation. There is something I can do. There is something you can do to earn a home in heaven. Now, the do's and the don'ts may be different from religion to religion. But at the end of the day, it always boils down to the same same thing. Join this church, give this money. Get baptized here, give the money. Get confirmed over here, give the money. Go to confession, give the money. Somehow, though the do's and don'ts may be different, give money kind of comes up in all the religions. It's like somehow there is something I can do. There is some check you can write out and you can purchase. And every single religion, though it may look a little different from the outside in, when you go to the inside out, this gentleman is speaking for all of them. There is something I can do. There is something I can pray. There is something I can say. There is something I can give. You just tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life. But what happens next from my Savior is absolutely fascinating. And I love the response in verse number 26. It's why you need to come to the class next Sunday morning. He, Jesus, said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? In Bible times, when somebody would be at the synagogue and it was their turn to read the scriptures, the man running the synagogue would say to the gentleman as he opened, opens up or scrolls out the Bible, how readest thou? It was their version of what does the Bible say? That's the right answer. Because when it comes to going to heaven, it is not what does a Baptist preacher say. It is not what does the Catholic priest say. It, it is not what does the Lutheran minister say or any other human. When it comes to going to God's heaven, the only question is what does the Bible say? How readest thou? What a perfect answer. You know, I find it interesting the Lord didn't look at him and say, well, you know, there are four spiritual steps here if you want to go to heaven. Nor did the Lord Jesus look at him and start quoting the theologians and the scholars and the doctors. Why, he didn't even tell them what Luther and Calvin said. What do you know? The Lord Jesus looks square in the eyeballs and says, how readest thou? What does the Bible say? And to the credit of Mr. Scribe, he is going to accurately quote the Bible. Verse 27. He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. The man is going to correctly quote first from Deuteronomy chapter number 6 and then after that he will correctly and accurately quote from Leviticus chapter 19. Well now, this fascinates me because you think of religion kind of oftentimes anyway as people that neglect the Bible and they would rather follow the dictates and the traditions that have been handed down. But not this gentleman. Why, as a good scribe, he was an expert in the law. He knew the law and he could quote the law. And so when Jesus said, how readest thou to us? What does the Bible say? Well, he starts out by saying, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And not just love him, but love him with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. To you and me, when we love with our hearts, we are loving with our emotions. However, in the Bible, it was slightly different. To love with the heart, Heart, that would be the home of your beliefs. 
When you love with your soul, the soul, could I say, would be the home of your want to. When you love with all your strength, like you and I would think of it, with your physical power. And when you love with your mind, the mind, as with us, was the home of your thinking. So when the man said, I have to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and with all my mind, he is saying, I have to think about him, I have to desire him, I have to know of him, I have to meditate of him, and with all of my hands and feet and strength, I have to serve him. He said, if I'm going to go to heaven, I have to love the Lord with everything. And if that weren't enough, he adds this, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And you know, the first century Jewish people had boiled it down to this because they were convinced that there was something I can do to inherit eternal life. And so if I am going to be good enough to go to heaven, if I am going to do something to go to heaven, well, number one, let's just boil it down to simple terms. I have to love God. And number two, I have to love my neighbor. They took these two commandments, kind of lifted them out of the Bible, and made them the big number one and the big number two. Well, you know, we've got the big ten commandments, don't we? Most people in America have heard of them. But if you go to the Old Testament, you'll discover an alarming thing. There, are not, there is not one commandment. There are not two commandments. There are not only ten commandments. There is a grand total of 613 of them. And if the man's thinking, I can go to heaven by keeping the commandments, well, he picks, I'll love the Lord and I'll love my neighbor, but what about the other 611? That's going to be a big problem here. So the man is convinced there is something I can do to go to heaven. And instead of getting into a debate and an argument, Jesus says to this brilliant scholar, what does the Bible say? How readest thou? And he accurately quotes, love the Lord and love your neighbor. But what follows next is a stunning thing for those of us who love the Lord this morning at Eagle Heights Baptist Church. It probably is not what you're expecting. I'll promise you it wouldn't be the answer that I would expect. Because in verse number 28, after the man just said, I can go to heaven if I love the Lord and I love my neighbor, Jesus answered him like this. Thou hast answered right. This do and thou shalt live. Does that unsettle you a little bit this morning? It probably should. I mean, what is it, 110 times? The Bible says in the New Testament, not by works of righteousness, for by grace are you saved through faith, not by works. The Bible says it is by, no one is going to get heaven by their works. If it is of grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. You get the idea. I mean, it's why Galatians is in the Bible. It is hammered home again and again. No one will ever go to heaven and say, I am here because I worked my way in. I am here because I paid my way in. Why, we know the repeated and the multiple verses in the New Testament that tell us again and again in simple words, not by works. And did you see what Jesus just said? How are you going to heaven? Well, I'm going to have to love the Lord and I'm going to have to love my neighbor. And Jesus didn't say, you got it all wrong, man. I haven't given Galatians yet, but you need to wait for it. No, no, the Lord Jesus said, this do and thou shalt live. And you know, religion is ready to pounce on that and say, see, see, you can go to heaven by being a good person. You can go to heaven by being a good man. You can go to heaven by being a good father. You can go to heaven by loving your neighbor. Jesus said, this do and thou shalt live. But before we get too far, up about that, we better stop and take a word, look at that word do. Because the word do is not Jesus saying, you do this one time in your life and everything is okay. The word do is a word that means you just 
keep on doing this. And you're never going to stop doing this. You've got to start doing this when you're just a child. You're going to have to keep doing it. In other words, it's a word that says every single hour of every single day of your entire life, if you are going to go to heaven by loving God, And by loving your neighbor, you're going to have to start loving your neighbor and start loving God and you're never going to have to stop. I mean, every hour there can't be one fault. There can't be one time where you mess up. I mean, with all of your minds, you have to constantly be thinking about God. With all of your heart, you have to constantly be choosing Him. With all of your soul, with all of your body, with all of your strength, you have to constantly be serving Him. If you want to work your way to heaven by loving God, then you better start loving God and never stop loving God and there better never be a time where you didn't love God. And if you're going to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, well, you better love your neighbor and never not love your neighbor. You better love your neighbor every hour of every day. There better never be an occasion where you get upset and you get angry and you say what you shouldn't, do what you shouldn't. Oh, no, every hour of every day, it has to be the story of your life. If you're going to work your way to heaven, in other words... You're going to have to be perfect. And you know, while I suppose there are some humans that think I'll give it a try, the rest of us this morning and say, well, you know what? I'm in really big trouble now. This do, and thou shalt live. You want to work your way to heaven? Well, there are 10 commandments. No, actually 613, who's counting? But if you're going to try to work your way to heaven, well, you better know those commandments and do those commandments, and there better not be a time where you don't do those commandments. You better keep every single one of them. This do, start doing it, don't stop doing it, keep on doing it, and thou shalt live. So do you know what the lawyer does? This is a beautiful thing. The lawyer does what lawyers are perfect at doing. He looks for a loophole. Notice how it goes in verse number 29. He willing to justify himself. That's what religious people have to do. Thankfully this morning, those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we can humbly bow our head and say, it's not by works that I have done, but we can join the, Ro- the, the book of Romans and say, I have been justified by faith, not justified by works, justified by faith. But when the religious man is going to try to work his way to heaven, He has to do what that verse says. He has to justify himself. Good luck with that. And so look what he does. He tries to get the loophole. Okay, if I'm going to go to heaven by loving my neighbor... He said, who is my neighbor? They love to do this. See, the legal experts would come along and and they basically said, no, 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 that guy's not your neighbor even though he lives next door. And and over there, they're not their neighbor because they have a different bloodline. And basically, the neighbor came down to somebody who was of my family who I actually liked. That's kind of how they defined this. And after all, if you go to heaven by loving your neighbor, well, you know, I got a great neighbor in Arizona, but maybe you don't. And and sometimes it's easy to love your neighbor. My wife and I have no problem with that. But uh, if you have a pretty tough neighbor, well, maybe it's not so easy. So they look for the loophole. Doesn't religion do it all the time? They're always looking for the loophole. The man says, you just tell me what I have to do. You tell me the work I need to perform. Mr. Religion says, I will do it. Instead of answering the question, Jesus gives them a question. What does the Bible say? And he says, well, I got to love the Lord and I got to love my neighbor. But he's got to justify himself now because Jesus said, okay, if you want to go to heaven by loving the Lord and loving your neighbor, make sure you do it all the time. And of course, no one can do that, so he justifies himself with this technical question, who is my neighbor? And you know what Jesus does? He launches into one of the great stories of the Bible. The Bible tells us 
that he looks at the gentleman in verse number 30. Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Ah, you say, the story of the good Samaritan. No. No, this is not the story of the good Samaritan. Because if you read the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is he ever called a good Samaritan. No, don't look at me like that. It's not there, I'm telling you. You say, well, you know, it's right there in my Bible. No, you know, the notes at the top of the Bible are just kind of trying to tell you where to find the scriptures. That's not part of the Bible. No, he has never called the Good Samaritan. You say, well, I always heard him as, so I did too. Everybody calls him the Good Samaritan. Really? You know, by the time you're done with the story, you realize that guy is not a Good Samaritan. That guy is a perfect Samaritan. I mean, that guy's just not a good guy. That guy's the perfect guy. I've got to tell you, the story is in the Bible. And look, this is how I heard it all my life. You know, good Sunday school teachers would point their finger and say, you be a Good Samaritan. It's preposterous. It's impossible for you or for me to live our life like this man. Impossible. But you know, this is almost, and I may be pushing it this morning, but this story, it could be, it just could be, the one story in the Bible you could read in a public school and not go to jail. I mean, even the world knows this story. It's that one story that everybody likes because religionists love to point their finger. Politicians love to point their finger. Be a good Samaritan, be a good Samaritan, be a good Samaritan, be a good Samaritan. But the Bible never says he was a good Samaritan. And when you just do a very dangerous thing, you, what's called, pull the story out of context, you end up making it say something Jesus never intended. See, when you let the story stay in the chapter... All of a sudden, it's very different, isn't it? Because the story is set up with a very arrogant religious man trying to tempt and trip the Lord Jesus who says, what do I have to do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, what does the Bible say? And he says, thou shalt love the Lord and love thy neighbor. And Jesus said, okay, you just keep doing this and you shall live. Make sure you never stop doing it. And when the guy realizes, well, I can't do that, he comes up with a who is my neighbor. So follow me now. Jesus is picking one of 613 laws. Just one. He could have picked any of the other 612. I mean, he could have told the story about, oh, do you love the Lord with all your heart? Really? You want to get into that? I mean, do you love the Lord with all your mind? Could Jesus have told a story about that? Oh boy, would we ever get our conviction? But no, no, he lays aside the other 612 and Jesus said, all right, let's just use one here about loving your neighbor, seeing as how you brought this up. If you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, then this is how you have to love your neighbor. And not only this is how you love your neighbor one time. Oh no, no, this is how you keep doing it. This is how you love your neighbor every hour of every day, of every week, of every week, for the rest of your life if you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor this story is in the Bible to tell us how we have to love our neighbor to go to heaven this is not for somebody to say be a good Samaritan Johnny this is somebody who wants to work their way to heaven by loving their neighbor this is how they got to do it all the time And Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho goes down through an incredibly steep canyon, back and forth, switchbacks. It's a 17-mile road. Because of all the caves and because of the canyons, in New Testament times, that road was called the Bloody Way. It was an incredibly dangerous road. 
And sure enough, on the bloody way, the Bible tells us this certain man fell among thieves. Would you notice thieves is plural. He didn't fall among a thief. So it is not that there was one guy coming the other way who saw his opportunity. There's no witnesses. And he held him up, took his wallet, and kept on going. No, thieves means it was an organized group of bandits. They hide up there in those caves. They hide behind those boulders. Massive caves, massive boulders. If you took that bloody way, you wanted to take it in the middle of daylight. And you wanted to take it in the midst of a big crowd. Because just like this man, there's a risk that the bandits are coming after. After you, he fell among thieves. And notice, everything in the story is critical now. They stripped him of his raiment, first thing. Do you know why that is so important? Because in New Testament times, there was a, a caste in society. And I know that exists perhaps to an extent in America, but nothing like it was in a place like Israel. So there was, of course, the slave class. Then there was the low class. I guess there's what you and I would call the middle class, upper middle class. And then there was the elite class. And in New Testament times, there were two ways you would identify what class you belong. And it matters because when you meet somebody, if they were of a higher class than me, then I was required to show great deference and great respect. But if they were lower class than me, <laughs> I, don't have to, I could just ignore them and just walk right on by. Two ways you would know the class somebody lived in. Number one, you could tell by the way they dress. Every class had a certain raiment that they would wear. Number two, you could tell what class they were in by how they spoke. Either educational level, everything came out in the words that they would speak. So when the Bible tells us these bandits, they pounce on this man and they steal his raiment. Number one, no one is going to look at this man and know where he fits into the caste system by his clothes. His clothes are gone. Then, after they stripped him of his raiment, the Bible says they wounded him and departed. And notice the phrase carefully, leaving him half dead. In New Testament times, in medical terms, half dead, you know, to us it kind of paints the picture. The guy's bloodied, the guy's battered. But this is more than that. It's a medical term. And while certainly he's bloodied and battered, half dead is a way of saying in, in New Testament times you are one step away from death. You know, it's kind of like going in a hospital, and they, I, I was amazed at that. You know, how do you feel today? Ten to one. I don't know what's ten, right? You're crying, and ones, you're laughing. Well, in New Testament times, I guess they had their similar system. And in New Testament times, right before you're dead, you're half dead. And half dead meant that you were unconscious. So now we have a different picture. Here is a man whose clothes are gone. You cannot look at that man and know where he fits into society. But not only that, he is half dead, meaning he is unconscious. The guy cannot speak. So there is no way someone could look at his clothes or listen to his speech and know where he fits into society. And that matters because what do you know in 31 by chance? There came down a certain priest that way. Priests. No doubt this guy's riding on a beast. Priests were wealthy and priests were at the top of the list. They were the elitists. So when the priest comes by, maybe barely notices over there that poor old guy beaten up naked. I, I, I mean, that poor old guy can't, here he is half dead. No clothes, no talk. Obviously, the priest is thinking, <clears throat> I am the elitist here. I am the upper crust in society. Uh, it's very unlikely that that gentleman is anything like me. And so the Bible tells us, Mr. Elitist Priest, he passes, comes on by, and, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. There's a lot of ways that people try to explain it, but simply, that guy almost certainly is lower than me. I don't have a responsibility towards him. 
So now here comes the second gentleman. Likewise, he's a Levite. Levites were a step under the priest. They were the assistant priests, so to speak. They did all the dirty jobs at the temple that the priest didn't want to do. So here comes a Levite. And, and perhaps in our American way of thinking, he certainly wasn't the elite class now. He'd probably fit comfortably in the middle class. So that's why the Bible says when he comes by, notice the words in, in the Bible, he comes by and he looked on him. No, he takes a closer look. You know, he's taking a look and, and not the first guy who's thinking, certainly he's not with me. This guy is thinking, you know, there's a chance he might be in my class or even higher. I'm going to have to take care of him if he is. But there's no clothes and there's no speech. So, so though he notices him, he kind of walks on by. You, you know what this guy probably did? He probably, you know, took something and put it around his wrist, you know, a little ribbon or something. You know how that makes people feel good. See how good I am? Because today I got a blue one, tomorrow I got a green one, the day after that I got a yellow one. And all that means is, well, I haven't done anything, I haven't given anything, and I really don't go spend any time on it. But if I put something around my wrist, if I put a band around my wrist, everybody will know how good I am. That's kind of what this guy's like. At the end of the day, I mean, if there were just Levites and priests, one guy couldn't care less, and the other guy may have cared a smidgen so much he put a band around his wrist. But at the end of the day, the guy's still at the side of the road, isn't he? So what good is it? So here comes Mr. Upper Crust in society, no doubt the priest, on a beast. If he notices him at all, obviously that's not my problem. I am above him. Here comes a guy who says, no, we may be on terms, but I'm looking real careful here, you know it. And I don't see any clothes, and the guy's half dead, he can't talk. So I'll just feel sorry for him. I'll show a little pity on him, and I'll just pass by on the other side. Some people couldn't care less, and some people care, and they don't do anything. The guy's still on the side of the road. And then, in verse number 33, a certain Samaritan. Could I stop there? Because if you and I were listening to Jesus tell the story, can you imagine when he's sitting there? Oh, man, what a thing to hear. When we come to this verse, we hear Jesus talk about a Jewish priest and then a Jewish Levite. Now, in the course of the story, you are 100% expecting Jesus to talk about a Jewish common man. But he doesn't. He says, a certain Samaritan. I mentioned this the other night. This is one of those occasions where it's like running your fingernails down a chalkboard. There's a lot more kids here today. Could we do this? Could we help them out and understand what that means? I mean, you are talking about cringing. You are talking about, as soon as I heard that word Samaritan, you can just almost hear a small little eruption out of the crowd because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. By the way, they forgot to tell you, the Samaritans have no dealings with the Jews. It all goes back about six or 700 years, all about an attack from Assyria where you know, the Assyrians started marrying the Jews and, and they were half-breeds as they called them. And I mean to tell you, there was all kinds of anger and all kinds of racism and all kinds of hatred and they hated each other. And so when Jesus says the good guy in the story is going to turn out to be a Samaritan, now I got to tell you, that's not impressing anybody. A certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was. And the Bible tells us, and what happens now, and you know, the Lord knows us. He knows us so well. He knows that when we come to a verse in a Bible and there's like a list of things, that we're going to put it on cruise control. We all do this. 
In fact, the English teacher, no doubt in your school, would look at this text if a student had written it, not the Lord, and said, what are you doing? You keep using the word and. You don't keep using the word and. You put a comma in. Get rid of the and and put a comma in there. However, there is a literary device here called a polysendenton. It's amazing how Google can make you sound smart on a Sunday morning. How can I tell you? That's what I mean. No, a polysendenton is when you're reading, for example, a verse in the Bible or any literary text, and when the word and is there, and you say, well, why is it there? And, 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 and. It's there for a reason. It is basically a Bible way of God saying, I know you humans. I know you'll put it on cruise control and you'll fly right through it. So he said, I want you to stop and notice every single one. So it says, when he journeyed where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him, and on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again to thee, I will repay. Religion says, be a good Samaritan. Really? Any one of us are going to do this? So here comes Mr. Good Samaritan. And if you're counting at home, and I'm not sure why you would be, there's 12 things. Here comes Mr. Samaritan now. And, of course, they don't deal with us and we don't deal with them. But no, the Bible says, number one, he came to the man. Number two, he saw the man. Number three, the Bible says he had compassion on the man. That word compassion is a very strong New Testament word. It doesn't mean he liked him. It doesn't mean he pitied him. It doesn't mean he sympathized for him. It means that he had the deepest love. He had the deepest compassion that a man could have. The Bible then says that he went to the man. Mr. Priest of the higher crust of society ignored him. Mr. Levi took a note put a band around his wrist and kept on going. Not Mr. Samaritan. The Bible says that he went to him. Then it says that he bound up his wounds. Do you know how he had to do that? You're not traveling with a medical kit. This is not an ambulance. To make the the bandages to bind up his wounds, no doubt the guy had to rip his own clothes. Then the Bible says he poured in the oil and the wine. We would expect that to go the other way. You would expect the wine, the disinfectant to go first. Then you would expect the oil to be given to soothe the pain. It would appear that this man was in such bad shape as the story goes. The oil had to come before the wine. Then he set him on his own beast. He's going to have to walk down that steep canyon. Then he brought him to the inn. In New Testament times, there's absolutely no record, there is no archaeological record that from Jerusalem to Jericho, on the bloody way, that there was an inn or a hotel. It wouldn't work. Too dangerous. Which means the guy had to carry him all the way into the city of Jericho. Do you know what this would be like? The best description I ever heard was a preacher who put it like this. This Samaritan, bringing this half-dead, unconscious broken down man, into the city of Jericho. He said it would be like an American Indian in 1875 walking into Dodge City with a dead cowboy on his horse. In other words, no questions asked. You did it. You're a Samaritan. You're guilty. That guy was going to pay the price. But if that weren't enough, he took care of him. And then I did care, care. He took care of him with his own money. 
He actually paid the owner of the inn to take care of him. It, you know, in Bible times, I mean, it wasn't like now where there was like laws to protect people in apartments or in inns or whatever. Oh, no. no. You don't pay the bill, buddy. You're out of here. You're out of here. You're out of here right now. Hey, you're unconscious. We'll just throw your body in the, in the street out back. Nobody cares. And the Bible tells us he not only took care of him, he paid to take care of him. And not only that, he kept on paying for him. The Bible tells us he paid two pence. In New Testament times, two pence would have been enough to put the guy in the hotel for 24 days. So the man not only puts him up for almost a month into the hotel with the promise, when I come again, I'll cover all his bills and I'll pay you more if I have to. But the Bible tells us that he covers his medical costs. Now, there you have it. This is not the story of be a good boy, Johnny, be a good Samaritan. I'm sorry, but I don't think there's too many of us that are going to drive down the street, see somebody we don't even know, naked and, oh, we might call 911. But there's not too many of us that are going to go to the guy, that we're going to rip our clothes to cover the guy. Then we're going to take care of the guy. We're going to give him our car to use. We're going to take him to the city. We're going to pay for the hotel. We're going to pay for the medical expenses and say, no matter how long it takes, I'm going to take care of the guy until he's better. I don't think there's too many of us here that are going to do that. And if you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, that's how you got to love every single human every single day for the rest of your life. No, that's how, if you want to be good enough for heaven, that's how you're going to have to do it. That's what he told the guy. I'm going to go to heaven by loving my neighbor. But who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, I'll tell you, yeah, that's Samaritan, the people you hate, that's your neighbor. And if you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, well, this is how you're going to do it. You're going to give, you're going to sacrifice, you're going to give everything you have for somebody you don't even know. You're going to take care of every need they have. You're going to give them the best stuff that you have. You're going to provide for them. And it's not just one guy, one time in your life. You have to do this constantly every single day of your life. And you know, that's only one of the 613 laws. Because you can almost hear somebody in Jesus' day, maybe on a different day, oh, I, I, I'm going to go to heaven because, because I never murdered anybody. And you can hear Jesus say, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And maybe some guy stands up, oh, I'll go to heaven because I love my wife. I've always loved my wife. I have never committed adultery. And Jesus says, well, if you've ever looked upon a woman inappropriately, you've committed adultery in your heart. See, that becomes the big problem with religion. Because if you're not talking about love your neighbor, then let's talk about thou shalt not kill, or let's talk about thou shalt not commit adultery, let's talk about thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You're going to have to every day of your life never have taken God's name in vain. How about this one on Father's Day? Honor your father and your mother. Now, there never can be a time in your life where you have a streak of rebellion against mom and dad. Oh, no, no, no. There never can be a time in your life where you covet stuff. You understand, the Bible tells us that when people are trying to work their way to heaven and they open up Ten Commandments, forget the other 613 or 603 there be, and forget all that. If you're going to try to work your way to heaven by Ten Commandments, well, to be honest with you, it's kind of like a discussion I had with a detective in Chicago one day. We're sitting at lunch. Big old tough guy. Hey, Joe, how you doing with the Ten Commandments? He grew up in a religious school. How you doing with the Ten Commandments? You know what he did? He gave the greatest answer I've ever heard. He said, I'm 0 for 10. And, you know, I stopped because I never heard that before. And I said, well, you know, Joe, the truth is you're not the only guy here 0 for 10. Because even if we kept the whole law yet offended in one point, one time, we're guilty of it all. You say, well then, why did the Lord say love your neighbor? Why did the Lord give those Ten Commandments? Or why did he give 613? 
You see, religion says God gave the commandments so you can keep them and earn a home in heaven. But the Bible tells us just the opposite. God gave us those commandments so you and I would shake our head and say, I can't keep them. I can't do that. I got to love my neighbor like that. Hey, I got a great neighbor, but I don't love him that much. And I'm suspecting you don't either. So if that's how you got to love your neighbor to go to heaven, we're all in big trouble. And when you get to every single one of those laws, we'd have to shake our head and can shake our head again and say guilty, guilty. And the purpose of the law is not what religion says. Do this, do this, do this, do this. You can go to heaven. You'll be good enough. You'll be able to, Bible word, boast in heaven. I'm here by my works. Not going to happen. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if anyone will go to heaven, it starts when they realize I can't keep the law. I can't be like that. And that's where it all starts. And to be honest with you, while it is very easy to understand how to go to heaven, for us, especially males, it's awfully hard to humble ourselves to the place where we say, I can't work my way there. But when you come to that place... And you kind of get hit by the two by four of the Bible saying, I can't be like that Samaritan. I can't be like this. I can't live like that. I'm not like that. I am a sinner. I'm a helpless sinner. I sin because I want to. I sin because I choose to. If we started numbering our sins, well, you know, that number would be pretty high. I mean, tens of hundreds of thousands for some of us grandparents. I mean, that list would reach right up to the heavens. And there is no hope in religion. There is no hope in works. And when we finally come to that place where we realize, I am so guilty, my sins are so so many, that's a great place to come. Because that's when you can go to a multitude of scriptures. Let me just give you two of them. One of them, the Bible goes like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You can go to a verse like Romans 5 and 8, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, the dirty, helpless, oh, for 613 sinners... Christ died for us. And when you finally come to the place where you look at the Bible and say, I'm guilty, guilty, condemned, hopeless, helpless. That's when you're ready to look to the word of God and see how Jesus died for our sins. He was buried in the ground, then he rose again the third day. That's when you're ready to open the Bible and see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. It's when you're ready to see neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. When you come face to face with the Bible and you realize I am the helpless sinner, you're ready to open up the Bible and see that Jesus is the only Savior. And when I know I'm the sinner, He is the way, the truth, and the life who died and rose again. Repentance and faith. You're ready to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Is He your Savior? What if somebody grows up in a Baptist church thinking, you know, I've been Baptist all my life. Kind of like the old Southern fellow said, I'm Baptist born, I'm Baptist bred, and when I die, I'm Baptist dead. If that's all you have, you're in real big trouble this morning. Big trouble. Because there's not a church that can save you. Say, well, I'll tell you what. I'll go in the office and I will confess all of my sins to Pastor Schaefer. And then he can absolve me. Will that work? Well, before you do that, you better take a look right about here. And if you don't see a nail print, that man can't take your sins away. He cannot absolve you. A sinner like me needs the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.
And while religion says, be a good Samaritan, Jesus is saying, you can't be a good Samaritan. So what you need is a Savior that will wash your sins away. The great message of the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Father in heaven, I ask and pray even now that you would do a work in this place to those who are listening online that a preacher cannot do, that a church cannot do. And Lord, may the truth of the word of God ring for every single one of us. Oh Lord, we know how easy it is for religions, how easy it is for churches to convince people there is something to join, there is a price to pay, there is a prayer to word, there is something you can do to go to heaven. But Lord, I pray you would help people understand that the Bible tells us it is not by works of righteousness which we have done. The only way to heaven is through the door, Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and I, I wonder in the quietness of this time,